Hi, everyone. It's Raghu. I am back. I'm back with an old friend, although we've never met in person. <laughs> we're, we're virtual friends. Rami Shapiro, uh, who's uh, just a... Uh, you know, Rami, even though we don't know each other that well, uh, we've done, you know, this is our second podcast, um, I do know of your work. Uh, Ram, Rami does incredible work uh, and uh, is... Uh, and I, I uh, is a rabbi, obviously, and uh, and we're going to discuss a book that he put out called the World Wisdom Bible, which is very interesting. But I will say to you, even though you know, as I said, we don't know each other that well, uh, you are like total family as far as I'm concerned, because and this book proves it because the moment uh, that I arrived in India with Ramdas, who went back when he went back the second time and met uh, his guru, became my guru, Neem Karoli Baba, the first words out of his mouth, at least in the first couple of times that I saw him, all one. All one. Oh, there is I, only I one. I thought you were going to tell me the first words out of his mouth was Rami or something. <laughs> <laughs> Ram. It was. It was Ram. Hey, Ram, but right, I miss me. Yeah. Me, yeah. <laughs> so, um, uh, and that's, if nothing else, is what this book is about, and... and uh, uh, it's a uh, it's a really beautiful thing, and the way that you and we're going to get into it. But you know what? Okay, great. First, I I need to I I have to uh, have you take on the role of rabbi at this moment, um, because some time ago, after Leonard Cohn died. So Leonard, I, I'm from Montreal, and we actually grew up in the same area of Montreal, called Westmount, and his. Uh, his grandfather started Sharha Shamayim, which was a, a major synagogue in uh, Montreal. And my mother's first cousin was the head rabbi there who bar mitzvahed me. And so we have this deep, deep connection and many mutual friends, and I had met him. And, so, uh, and when I was a kid growing up, because he was somewhat older, he was a hero. And everything that he wrote and every word that he wrote and every song, I mean, it was just so meaningful for me. So that when he died, um, there was, um, you know, a, a lot of articles about him and so on. Uh, there was one in particular that really struck me, Rami. Uh, and it was from, it's an article, uh, it's called Being Leonard Cohn's Rabbi by Rabbi Mordecai Finley. I don't know if you know him. Yeah, I know Mordecai. Oh, you do? Oh, yeah. Okay, perfect. So uh, there was a, the discussion about where they were at around the Kabbalah, and and how they um, they were really uh, tuned in together about. Uh, and I, you know, I'm trying to decipher. I have been trying to decipher because I'm not a student of Kabbalah, and I I left Judaism not in such great shape because I was forced to go, you know, to shul on the high holidays and all that stuff and ran off to India, right? Um, but uh, I, I, you know, I, I have read some things, so I've always had an in interest. And here they talk about Lurianic Kabbalah sees the breaking of the vessels as the poetic truth that defined the breakage of the human being. Okay, that's one of his statements. Uh, we had both seen the terrifying obsidian luma luminosity. I mean, this man can write. We shared a world of divine absence, except for a shattered residue. 
We shared a common language, a common nightmare. I think Leonard finally found a rabbi who spoke the truth from which he wrote. And, uh, and, and then I saw that took me into, okay, I've got to find out about the breaking of the vessels. And now that I have you here, can you talk to me and, about the breaking of the vessels and, and this concept that they shared uh, from the Kabbalah? Sure. So in 1492, when Columbus came to America, uh, the big tragedy of the era for Jews was that was when uh, Jews were expelled from Spain. They'd been living in Spain for a thousand years and they needed it was it was, you know, their equivalent of a Holocaust. It was it was incredibly traumatic to the world Jewish community, and they needed a way of explaining it. And ultimately, you get this rabbi, Isaac Luria, who creates a new theology for Judaism based on the notion of the breaking of the vessels. And the idea is, is that when the universe was created, the the divine energy that was supposed to be at the heart of everything was, was poured out and was supposed to be contained in these vessels. But the vessels had never been tested before, and they cracked, they shattered, they broke. That's the breaking of the vessels. And the energy of the divine was was shattered and sent out into the, the universe and eventually becomes trapped in the material world. So the the, the theology that Luria comes up with is that in order to put God back together again, because unlike Humpty Dumpty, you can actually put God back together again. Uh, to do that, God needed a repair people, right? And so God chose the Jews for this act of what we call tikkun olam, which in modern Hebrew is social action, social justice. But in Luria's Kabbalistic understanding, it was literally repairing the divine repairing the universe. That's what Olam means. Tikkun is repair. Olam is, is world or universe. Repairing the universe by lifting these trapped or freeing first the trapped sparks of God in, in the world and lifting them back up and, and putting God back together again, in a sense. And the that's the Jews task. So <laughs> we we were in Spain for a thousand years and then we had to move on to 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 put God together again, you know, somewhere else to find other sparks to be liberated. And we didn't want to go. So his, his surmise was that God forced the expulsion of the Jews in order to move the Jews to the next cleanup site. We were like the, the hazardous waste cleanup folks of, <laughs> of the planet. Uh, on, a, on a deeper psychological level, I think what Luria, the, the reason Luria still works today is not because of the ontology. I mean, not because anyone necessarily believes what I just said, literally. Mm -hmm. But if you take it metaphorically, the idea is that at the heart of everything, well, I mean, now we can quote Leonard Cohen, right? There's a crack yeah. that lets, the, the, you know, for him, it lets the light in, but the, everything is, is, is broken. Everything is, is cracked and can be repaired. Now the, the, the question we would have to have is what does it mean to repair this stuff? Um, and, and we might differ on that, but but that's that's what he has in mind that mm. that everything is is got this broken element, and just to say one more thing about it before if if you want to go on to repair we can, but to say one more mm -hmm. thing about the brokenness, the brokenness is experienced continually 
in our sense of alienation from one another, from nature, even from our deepest, truest selves. So we are trapped in our own sense of, and it's an illusion, I would say, ultimately, but we are trapped in the, in the illusion of separateness. And that, to me, is the ultimate break. Mm. Um, and then that can be repaired. And, and lots of religions talk about how to repair that. Mm. Um, I actually had, uh, I found some other article uh, that included information around Sefirot, God's revealed attributes. Um, and and it said, uh, the task of individual men and women is to extract via an act of birur those sparks, sparks netzotim, that are his or her fortune to encounter in life and to raise and spiritualize them so as to reconstitute the sefirot. Right. The way you do that is treating everything and everyone with absolute respect. Well, what, just last thing about this, because uh, it starts to get into something that people, for me, that are listening to this podcast can relate to about how this can apply in their daily life. They talk about each individual, as he or she travels along life's path, encounters people, events, and things that contain sparks that he or she is uniquely suited to redeem. Likewise, the objects with which and people who an individual encounters are potentially suited to assist that individual in raising the sparks within his or her own soul. Each encounter and each life event is an opportunity to raise a spark of holy light or plunge the world even further into darkness. The raising of the sparks is the vehicle of tikkun, tikkun ha'olam, the restoration of the world. I mean, that's that starts to get practical, shall we say? Yeah, right. I mean, it's it. It is a practical theology in the sense that it lays at your feet, uh, healing the world that you encounter, uh, human and otherwise. Mm. So yeah, it's it's very practical. Um, it's also misleading in the sense that, well, because, you know, when we talk about repairing the world, it sounds like the brokenness is the problem. And in my own experience, and I imagine if you're coming from Neem Karoli Baba and and, and an Advaita non-dual, you know, uh, understanding of of reality, uh, brokenness is just part of the, the greater whole. So I I don't see it as repairing brokenness, as if you could make a world that was unbroken and had no brokenness in it. I think it's more um, broadening your your concept of reality so that brokenness fits in. Not everyone that I encounter, um, even though everyone has their, and we're using it metaphorically, this sense of brokenness, I'm not, I'm really not here to fix that. You know, even... Yeah, I, don't, I don't even know what it means to say that I might have the unique capacity to, fi- to help, you know, fix some brokenness in, in someone's life. But, but whatever that might be, even if I have that capacity, I'm not sure that's the task uh, to fix someone's brokenness. I mean, I, I mean, the whole I, I'm not a Kabbalist. I don't mm. oh, I, really? I understand. I understand this stuff to the extent that I understand it. I find 
a lot of uh, not just Kabbalistic teachings, but a lot of the esoteric teachings of the world's religions meaninglessly complicated. Mm. Um, it's, 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 it's almost a distraction from the simplicity of living a, 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 a holy life, a life of, of respect, a life of love, a life of compassion and justice. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, you know, all this stuff about sphere wrote and, and the attributes of God. And, you know, it's interesting. I actually am invited once in a while to teach this material and I have, you know, training in it, at least academically, mm. but it doesn't speak to me spiritually. It doesn't speak to me emotionally. I don't, I don't see it the way, um, you know, an actual Kabbalist would see it. In fact, I, I just, um, did a five session, about 10 hours, uh, person, you know, in, in person classroom exploration of Kabbalah. And what I sensed was it was just entertainment. Uh, it was for people. They were, oh, and what are the different sphere road and what are the colors associated and how do they work with angels? Mm. And like, yeah, so, you know, you could Google it <laughs> and find out all this stuff. But what difference does it make? So mm. I'm in that place where mm. this stuff is entertaining, maybe. But I don't I, I think it's ultimately distracting. Um, mm. So, I, you know, it's interesting. I didn't know. I mean, I know Rabbi Finley. I didn't know he was Leonard's rabbi. Leonard Cohen was my first Jiki Jitsu in the Zen tradition. The first session I sat with uh, Sasaki Roshi, Leonard was the second in command. That's the Jiki Jitsu role. Mm. And I knew him that way. I didn't know him Jewishly. I only knew him Buddhistly. <laughs> and um, I'm not sure he was into any of it after a while. And it seems to me that I mean, like taking on another identity, another label. He never denied being Jewish. I've seen photographs of his room at uh, Mount Baldy Zen Center where he's got his menorah on the his bureau and, you know, his Hanukkah, uh, uh, Hanukkah, his, his Hanukkah menorah on his bureau. I, I know he's, he continued to identify. He certainly uses a lot of Jewish uh, material in his music. Mm-hmm. He's very influenced by it. I mean, and the last album, has you know his cantor yeah. you know engaged from, in, yeah, in from singing my with shul. Him. <laughs> from yeah, right, right. Mine. So, so, so there's there's that. But ultimately, to me, all this stuff is a distraction. Mm. It's reality isn't. The reality doesn't need this overlay of Hindu, Jewish, yeah. Buddhist, Christian, Muslim um, ideology. Yeah. Complexity. Yeah. 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 Needlessly. Needlessly complicated. Yeah, no, I hear you, and I'm, I'm completely with you. Um, although I, I, I have to admit, I do um, appreciate some of the Tibetan stuff that can be similar to that, very much so. If you go to a Dalai, His Holiness the Dalai Lama or any of these teachers, uh, talk about complexity and people nodding on <laughs> to sleep halfway right, through right. the whole thing. And I mean, that, it's an interesting question, though. Why is it really, does it need to be that complex? Or is it is making it that complex simply a way of keeping the average person from, you know, from mastering it? It's like, oh, my God, this is so difficult. I have to go to a rabbi or I have to go to a lama or I have to go you know, mm. to a guru because there's just no way I'm going to figure this out. <laughs> um, you know, it could all be just part of a uh, of, of a 
you know, just the way elites work. I mean, I, I'm at you know, university a lot of the time, and I know that every department has its own language. And part of the purpose of that language is to make things incomprehensible to people who haven't paid their dues uh, and, and entered into that field. Mm. So, you know, my sense is it really isn't as complicated as we make it out to be. And I think I think that the complications just become needless distractions. Mm. And I imagine uh, I mean, I know a lot of people who studied with Neem Karoli Baba, and I don't think he was complicated. No, absolutely not. Subek is one. Christ, Krishna, Muhammad, your book. He basically said your book, what your book is is reflecting. Absolutely. Um, yeah, but on the other hand, I just want, because, <laughs> <laughs> because I love His Holiness and, and some of the other Tibetan teachers, including Trungpa Rinpoche, who I, I did spend time with a long time back. And um, they they definitely had a... It wasn't coming from a place of let's make this uh, th this as complex as possible so that uh, you know we'll ordain more monks or whatever it is, uh, and and get the Westerners in line. Uh, they did come from a very altruistic place, and His Holiness is you know the Dalai Lama. When you just sit, I didn't care what he was saying, <laughs> just sitting there with him. <laughs> well, that's good. Then. Yes, Darshan was <laughs> fine with me. Yeah, uh, I don't. I don't no, want to suggest yeah. that the, that these individuals are consciously trying to obfuscate, you know, mm -hmm. reality so that they can, you know, make a living at it. That's not what I meant. I think that that. The, the complication comes from a long time ago when you're creating a class system and you have mm -hmm. you know, the religious people in a certain in a certain class and they're trying to maintain their their role just the way um, you know, college professors do in right. various fields. Right. Right. All right. So talk about the book. How did this all occur to you to put together a New Testament for a global spirituality that you edited? And uh, yeah, what's the genesis of it? What prompted you? Yeah, the whole point of the World Wisdom Bible is to provide people with a text that shows that on the deep mystical level, regardless of the religion, the sages who are in that, you know, the mystical sages are all saying the same thing. And what we did was, you know, you get lots of books on comparative religion. You can get lots of books that are anthologies of different religious teachings, but they're oftentimes divided by the religion itself. So what we did was we juxtaposed Jewish, Christian, Hindu, Buddhist. It's it, all the texts that we used or all the traditions that we used. The texts that we quote from are juxtaposed one after the other yeah. so that it, the message, the meta message of the book is, hey, look, they're all saying the same thing. It's not that one religion has the answer. It's that they are all either articulating the same answer at this mystical level, not at the surface level, but at the depth. Either they're all articulating the same answer, or I prefer to say they're all pointing toward that same truth that cannot be put into words. Yeah. And that's the point, the point of the Bible. Our goal, I mean, the, this was published by Turner Publishing under the uh, Skylight Paths um, imprint, and uh, in collaboration with the One River Foundation that I, I co-founded a couple mm -hmm. of years ago. And our original idea was to take the World Wisdom Bible. I mean, they're for sale. You can go to Amazon. You can go to Turner's website and, and buy them. But 
we buy them in bulk, meaning we, One River Foundation, and our original intent was to give them away free to hotels, retreat centers, hospitals, wherever you found a Gideon Bible. Yeah. Our motto was move over Gideon. Yeah. So if there's a Gideon Bible in a hotel, we wanted right next to it a World Wisdom Bible. Gideon celebrates one religion, and we wanted to say, hey, there's another way of looking at religion. There are other texts. There are other other religions, and they have this shared what we call perennial wisdom that you might find more compelling or at least equally compelling to the Gideon Bible that, that's in the drawer. Although you, you might find a little pushback on that whole concept well, yeah, in this country. Yeah, I would think, I would think so. I would think so. The, the surprising thing is, it, it, I mean, we are doing it. Some places are taking the books and putting them on drawers. We found two things. One, it seems like fewer and fewer places actually have Gideon Bibles anymore. Just, really? I'm too old. I didn't realize that. But more interestingly, we found that people didn't, that the power of the book is in the conversations it raises. And people wanted to talk about the book, not simply you know, I'll send you 10 copies, find 10 places to stick it. Uh, they wanted to talk with their friends about the book. So we created a program around the World Wisdom Bible called Cup of Wisdom. And that is um, a salon that you'd host in your own home with a few friends. And you let us know you're doing it. We send you free copies of the Bible and the cup. <laughs> it's a red, a red coffee mug that, uh, that goes with it. Yeah and a leadership guide. And, you know, we help you run little conversation groups in your, in your own living room. And that's been more successful. We, we've got, um, groups running in, in Atlanta now in Houston. Mm, great. I, I don't, I don't keep track of this, so I'm the wrong person to ask for uh, particulars, but this is, this is really where the, where the book is going now. Mm. And you know, yeah, great. it's, it's really, it's really interesting what people are doing with it. Mm. Uh, it's a it's a wonderful offering. Just showing the unity of of all is just uh, it's right up uh, right up our line. I'll tell you that. But then there was um, and this I just noticed this at the back of the book. It's actually an appendix. It's called Warnings from the Dark Side. Right. Okay. <laughs> and then, you know, and you say in here, we include some of these darker texts here as warnings. When you come across teachings such as those in the world's religions, know that they come not from the capital self, true self, shall we say, but the little self, not from perennial wisdom, from the optical delusion that breeds fear, xenophobia, misogyny, and demonization of the other. And uh, then I, I turned the page to see what you were talking about because you put a bunch of quotes in here from. And right. then I realized, oh, my God. I mean, you know, you hear about this. And, of course, you hear more of it from Islam, you know, the denigration of Islam because of the, you know, the stuff that's in the Quran. Yeah. But you go to go to the Old Testament. I remember what Amalek did to Israel, the ambush they laid against the people as they fled from Egypt. Now go and strike down Amalek and destroy all they have. Have no pity on them. Kill men and women alike, infant and nurslings alike. Oxen, sheep, camel, and donkey. Yeah. <laughs> and it's in the same holy book that says, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. What so, is up? With well, I mean, that's that's one of the things I love about the World Wisdom Bible is that it tells you there's a dark side. You know, religion to me is human, is, is a human creation. All sacred texts are human creations. And so they contain the best of what we're capable of and the worst. Mm -hmm. And I used to think when I was 
you know, half my age, and I had a synagogue uh, community that I was leading, I, I thought for a while that we would simply, I mean, I don't mean this literally, but I wanted to take a big black magic marker and blot out of the Torah, you know, all of these negative passages. Mm. And then I remembered how expensive an actual Torah is, so I changed, <laughs> I changed my mind. What, what we did in my synagogue is we restricted our Saturday morning readings, our Sabbath readings, to things that were actually positive. And for our, uh, the kids who became bar and bat mitzvah, regardless of what weekly cycle you know, you're supposed to follow, we, had, we picked things that were uplifting, that were going to inform them in a positive way about not just being Jewish, but about being a human and not read, even if they were coming up in the cycle of the week, mm. not read these dark sayings. But we didn't avoid them altogether. We, we um, taught them in adult ed because what I came to realize was, A, th these are human documents. When you read the, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, you're seeing mirrored back to you the highest you're capable of. And when you read kill every man, woman, child and cow, you're having mirrored back to yourself the worst you're capable of. And if you don't own the worst, mm. then you're going to project it onto somebody else or you're going to excuse doing the worst in the name of being the best. Mm. <clears throat> so I think it's very important that we that we look at the dark side of our material. I got it interesting when the book came out. You know, went out a lot of different places. I got an interesting email from an, an Indian fellow, a Hindu, and he wrote back to complain about the dark side of the, the Hindu text that we were, you know, we, we included in the World Wisdom Bible. And I thought the complaint was, you know, you don't understand these texts and they, they're in historical context and you shouldn't have put them there, mm. all of which is not false. But uh, what he complained about was, oh, no, you didn't find the really dark texts. If you redo this book, you let me know. I'll send you <laughs> even worse material. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, you know, and, and one of the things, let me just go back on one second here uh, on, the, on this notion that these texts are in a historical context. It's true that, I mean, we're talking about Amalek and the one that you created, and there's no Amalekites left. We probably wiped them out. But when you hear it on a Saturday morning and no one is stopping to say, hey, look, don't take this into contemporary life. When you don't do something like that, then you do take the dark material and you find a way to uh, justify it. But worse, you find a way to justify doing what the dark material tells you to do today. So, you know, mm. when 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 Amazing. You know, the extremist um, mm. Jews in, in Israel look at the Palestinians, they treat them not as neighbors, but as, you know, I, I'm, I'm being hyperbolic here and, and not to be taken literally, but they treat them like Amalekites. I mean, they're not killing them outright, but they are certainly not allowing them to thrive, right? So, um, I mean, I was once with a, a wonderful imam we were teaching together some of these darker texts, and there's stuff in the Quran that is just vicious. Mm -hmm. And I asked him about it, and he said, "Oh, look, it has a historical context. It, you know, when sometimes when Muhammad is railing against, or Allah is railing against the Jews, it's not the Jews. It's like when John does it in 
in the gospel according to John, he rails against the Jews. They're really talking about specific Jews, and they just did it in this globalist way. And if you understand that, then the Jews that they want to hunt down and kill in the Quran, they're not all Jews. They're Jews who betrayed Muhammad. They had a treaty. They betrayed the treaty. He was ticked off at that. Allah was ticked off at that. So Allah says, go get them. And Muhammad says, go get them. I said, okay, that makes total sense to me. I have, I have no problem with that. I, do you, when you read that uh, in the mosque on a, you know, on a Friday, do you stop and explain that? And he goes, of course not. Who's got time for that? We got to get through the service. <laughs> I said, sure. well, then then the average person listening to this holy text is going to hear kill the Jews right. as opposed to no, no, no. It was a long time ago. Those Jews, not today's Jews. So so these te texts are dangerous uh, and need to be explained and, and really wrestled with as adults. Mm -hmm. That's quite a perspective I hadn't thought about myself. Wow. So the, in the beginning of the book, uh, you bring up all the different major religions and so on. And I had a little bit of a, a wow moment. And that was how much I really jived with Confucianism, <laughs> which I've never <laughs> even looked at in once in my whole entire life. And, and just, you know, the wholeheartedness at the at the core, uh, I just uh, I, as you know, and I've already said, and, and listeners know how much I love His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and I just uh, he, I, th I think it was a commencement thing or something in, in out in California very recently, and he he talked about the necessity of us really developing wholeheartedness so that we can really not be polarized, basically. And and wow, Confucianism is all about that. And then, yeah. and I've always loved Taoism and, and the return to harmony. And those two things alone talk about simplicity of uh, of delivery and and connection. Yeah, I was asked recently. I, I somebody said to me, "If you weren't born Jewish, what religion would you choose to be?" So I think my, I mean, what I said was I wouldn't choose to be any religion. I would study the perennial wisdom of, you know, that's at the base of all of them. But if I had to choose a religion, I think some combination of Taoism and Confucianism make a lot more sense than, mm. you know, Judaism, Christianity, Hinduism, and, and Buddhism. But, you know, it doesn't, doesn't make me a lot of friends. Yeah. Just <laughs> I think we should do that. Let's, let's, let's do a movement and put something together for that. And some of these quotes, uh, uh, some of these uh, poems, whatever you want to call them, uh, from the different religions uh, are just fantastic, everybody, in this book. This is a book that you can just have and, you know, you do your little meditation in the morning and then just open the book somewhere. Not in the very back, <laughs> the dark <laughs> one, but in the front. And anything you read is going to set your, your day uh, and uh, th this one, I just have to read a couple of these, but uh, this one's uh, from Rabbi Nosen. And above and below, in heaven and on earth, everything is absolutely empty and without substance. Although this is impossible to explain, it can be grasped according to the intuition of each person. I, could, I mean, that could be out of the Dhammapada. I mean, yeah, talk right. about bringing stuff together in that moment. Oh, my God.
Yeah. I mean, I, I spent in 1984, Father Thomas Keating invited me to be part of his mm. snow mass group, this gathering of uh, contemplatives from different religious traditions. And we lived together with him at St. Benedict's Monastery for a while, uh, you know, a week or 10 days, whatever it was. And we followed the, the, the life of the monks, except when the monks went to work, we had our conference. And one of the things that we discovered very quickly is that we were all experiencing the same reality when we were doing our meditation, even though we each were doing our own thing. We all seem to have the same experience or non-experience because the self that would experience is gone. But we're all going to the same place, if you can, if, I, if you excuse me the metaphor. And um, when we come back, we use different languages to explain it. But the the fact that, that uh, Rabbi Nussan can teach this and you find it in Buddhism and you find it in Hinduism and elsewhere simply attests, in my mind, to the truth that there is an underlying, uh, you know, reality or underlying truth that all religions share, but that they all distort when they get into their theologies and their tribalism and, and all the rest of it. Mm. And, and that's where I think religion gets need, needlessly complicated. And that's where I want to just cut back to the, you know, the heart of it, the perennial wisdom at its yeah. heart. Yeah. Um, another uh, one of the things that's always, that has attracted me particularly uh, to actually there's two things that have attracted me to Judaism. Uh, as I said, I was forced by my family, so that you know that became a, a an impediment for me. Uh, but two things: first of all, um, the cantors and the prayers and how they rode these beautiful waves, which I got without understanding a lot. I mean, I understood. I, I lived in Israel. I spoke a little Hebrew so at that time. But the passion from which this the wisdom came, and, and you, th there's one poem in here that uh, by Rabbi Levi Yitzchak of Berdachev from Hasidic Tales, where I wander, you. Where I wander, where I wonder, you. Only you, you again, you always. You, you, you. When I'm happy, you. When I'm sad, you. Only you, you again, you always. You, you, you. Sky, you. Earth, you. You above, you below. In the beginning, you. In the end, you. Only you, you again, you always. You, you, you. Yeah, it's powerful. I mean, it's a it's a powerful Levi Yitzchak in, in the in the Yiddish original, the U is called Doodle. That's the the word, and it's uh, do is the formal U, but Doodle is like you, darling, my <laughs> beloved you. Yeah. You know, it's a very intimate you. So it yeah. doesn't come across in English. We don't have a word for it. But it's it might be better to say, you know, above, sweetheart, it's you, <laughs> you know, something like that. Well, beloved, there's, definitely, yeah, beloved, right? definitely beloved, beloved. very and, intimate, a very intimate and, do, very intimate you and, here. And it's very, very uh, essence of of the tradition that I was steeped in with with Maharaji, which yeah. is bhakti yoga, yoga of devotion. That thing yeah, could right. be just out of, you mean, directly. So, again, another incredible cross-current. Uh, 
there's something you uh, that I saw. It's another fantastic. There's a lot of fantastic little things in here, Rami. Buy this book. It's buy fantastic. this book. By the way, <laughs> go buy the book. Go through uh, our uh, our affiliate link on BeHereNowNetwork.com. Just go, go through that link, and then we get a little couple of shekels, and Rami does, and everybody is happy. Um, this is a quote, and this is from a chapter, uh, The Nature of Wisdom, Overcoming the Illusion of Separateness. If there isn't anything bigger going on uh, exoterically in our world right now, never mind uh, inside ourselves, uh, it's this. And this is from Albert Einstein. And it was, he, I guess it's a letter. I, I've never read this before. It's, it's, um, it's a, a private letter to Robert Marcus on the occasion of the death of his son. A human being is part of the whole, called by us universe, a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of his consciousness. Great phrase. The striving to free oneself from this delusion is the one issue of true religion. Not to nourish the delusion, but to try to overcome it is the way to reach the attainable measure of peace of mind. Talk about simplicity. Yeah, right. And, and if you didn't know it was Einstein, you might have thought it was, you know, uh, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. It yeah. could have been, you know, uh, Ramakrishna. It, it could have been, you know, uh, Ramana Maharshi. I mean, there's a lot of people you might guess it was. But it's coming from Einstein, who is a scientist, a secularist, a humanist. Um, the, the, that wisdom is, I don't know if I say it transcends, but maybe that's the way to put it. That wisdom transcends all of our, our isms and ideologies. Hmm. Uh, there is something else from uh, the chapter, uh, another understanding God consciousness. The eternal I. Why don't you talk about the eternal I and its relationship to us in a, in a practical level? I'm ah, <laughs> that makes it much more difficult when you throw in the practical, practical level, yeah. right? I mean, the notion of the eternal I is that you and I are manifestings of the same reality and a reality that cannot be even though I'm talking about it as an object, really cannot be experienced as an object. It's the eternal subject. It's the seer uh, and not just what is seen. So, you know, this is what Ramana Maharshi talks about when he talks about uh, the I am. This is, mm -hmm. this is the right way to understand Exodus, I think it's 314, where God reveals God's name to Moses as Ehia, Asher Ehia, which most Bibles translate as I am that I am, but better translation is, and it's not good English, but as I am, uh, God is the I aming that is I aming. It's much more dynamic. It's fluid. It's always uh, in flux. It's not that God changes. It's that God is change itself. It's, you know, it's, it's sort of process theology from thousands and thousands of years ago. This I is the I that looks through you know, the, the eyes in our head. This is the eye behind the egoic eye that I think I am when I look at myself in a mirror. Mm. And, mm. you know, the, the, the practical value of realizing that eye is then I realize that you and I are the, the same 
Right. I, I don't know. I don't want to say thing. It's not a thing. We are the same process. We are the same. We are we are unique happenings of the same dynamic. Um, when I know that, then the 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 ethic that comes from that is the ethic of non-harming. It's I can't do anything. It's not like you have to be commanded, thou shalt not X. It's that when I realize that um, you and I or, you know, each of us and, and the world around us uh, are interconnected, interdependent, as the Buddhists talk about it, you know, pratityat samudpada. But more than that, that we are actually expressions of the singular reality. When I really know that, I can't harm and the extent that I do harm is the extent to which I'm still locked into Einstein's optical delusion. Mm -hmm. So the work to me is to realize that, to, to tap into, I mean, there's, there's no language for this. It's always bad because yeah. it's always dualistic and we're not talking really dualism. But in any case, to have that experience, to, to sense that I. So on a very practical level, I was talking with uh, Matthew Ricard, the mm -hmm. uh, French uh, Tibetan Buddhist and, and, on, on my my podcast and we, we've talked a couple of times but we the last time we talked was about his book on compassion toward animals and i get compassion toward elephants and compassion toward lions and cows and i try to well i don't try i, I don't eat meat um so you know we're talking about that but then you know he decided to go a little make it more difficult what about gnats you know <laughs> little flies and things and you know, I mean, I before I talked to him, even though I knew better, before I talked to him, I wouldn't even think about it. If there was a little bug in, you know, we, we have these little bugs that come through the bathroom window. If I noticed it on the mirror or on the sink, bam, I'd kill it. And I wouldn't think twice about it. And then he said, you know, we know, he said, both spiritually, but I think scientifically as well, that even a gnat has doesn't have a sense of I. The gnat doesn't fly around going, hey, it's me, Jack <laughs> the gnat, right? It doesn't, it doesn't do that. But it has a sense of beingness that is that can suffer and that does suffer when I kill it. So okay, thanks. I appreciate that. Blah blah blah. And I haven't I haven't harmed a bug since. <laughs> and, and it's like just the other day, there was this wasp nest all around this place. I was, I said, oh, I got to be careful. And I needed to get them out of where they were. But I did it in such a way that didn't do any harm to the wasp or any of the wasps. And the same thing with the bugs. Somehow there's a there's a pause that now happens uh, in my in, in my experience of the bug that recognizes, oh, it's it's sister bug. It's it's brother bug. And I just have to let it be. Now, you know, if you told me this mosquito's carrying Zika, bam, he's gone. <laughs> yeah, Sri Aurobindo but, and the mother, they used to talk about, it's okay, because, you know, they had such terrible uh, problems yeah. with mosquitoes down in South India there. It's okay, they told their disciples, yeah, you can go right. ahead and kill. But let me yeah, tell it, you, you, you just talked about something two two days, maybe, yeah, two and a half days ago, whatever. I disturbed a hornet's nest and got bitten up, okay? I ended up... Uh, about three millimeters short of anaphylactic shock yeah, yeah. in uh, ER took three hours of cocktail to get me out of it. Okay. And when that bee, he came right on my hand and he was like stinging me and I'm like, <laughs> I'm fighting it and it didn't yeah, die. Yeah. Okay. 
I mean, there's a survival thing too, Matthew Ricard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. I mean, and that's and that's really probably operating on a very, you know, um, not not a, a rational level. I mean, just defending yourself. You know, it's 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 just sort of the autonomic nervous system. But but to wantonly kill these things, yeah, um, to kill these beings, yeah, right. which I had been doing without thinking about it. Now I think about it. So again, like you said. Uh, you know, and uh, with with Aurobindo and the mother, yeah. If if these are disease carrying bugs that you've got to you have to eliminate because it's causing you know damage, then I understand that. But mm. the bugs that I've been killing, they were innocent of any crime <laughs> that I know of. Anyway, <laughs> they were just yeah. where I didn't want them. Well, back to the eternal eye because. Oh, we never left. Yeah, the eternal <laughs> eye. <laughs> we're we're all trying to get back to the eternal eye. Um, but there, there's a little interesting thing in uh, your comments around it. Uh, forgetting that we uh, are each this eternal I is how it is with each of us. And because this is how it is with each of us, we all suffer from a case of m mistaken identity. Yeah. That is the daily thing, right? Mistaken identity. Imagining we are other than the one that is all. And then uh, this is really great because you, you, this is uh, around the Zen, you know, the Zen who have koans, right? Show me your face before your parents were born. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and a koan, and you say a koan is a puzzle that cannot be solved logically. It has to be embodied. We did some great ones with it. You know, Roshi Joan Halifax, I think you do. Yeah. Yeah. So she was at a retreat and she was, she did that in one retreat, a number of different koans that were just marvelous. Uh, and live from the inside out rather than tackled from the outside in. You become the koan rather than solve the koan, which is all diametrically opposite of our whole training in the West. It's like... Oh, absolutely. To show your face before your parents were born is to drop the face you have at the moment, to drop the egoic I conditioned and defined by the narratives of religion, nationality, ethnicity, gender, and culture, and realize the internal the eternal I who has no narrative and cannot be conditioned or defined. God willing, we need to, to get there <laughs> sooner than yeah, later. Well, well, you know, I think, I think part of it, though, is to realize you're always there. You don't get back to the eternal I. You are mm, the eternal yeah, I. No. But um, we, we block it. Right. Yeah. I mean, the Hindus have that, that uh, phrase, neti neti, not this, mm. not that. Mm. And it's really a continual wiping away of of the, the delusions. I was with Father Thomas Keating a few months ago. <clears throat> He's in his 90s. He's probably close to, to passing. Mm. And I asked him, so how are you preparing to die? And uh, I don't know if you ever met Father Thomas, but he's no. this very... But I know of him through Rome. He's very tall. He's, I mean, he's in a chair, but, but uh, he's just this very gracious, graceful individual. And, and he makes this this releasing motion, just like that. He just mm. goes, you know, he says, this is how I've lived my life. Every time Thomas comes up, I let Thomas go. And then Thomas comes up, I let Thomas go. Oh, wow. And when I, when I die at the very end, whatever's left of Thomas, I'm just going to let it go. Mm -hmm. And then I said, so where do you go? Because he's Catholic. I thought he's going to tell me heaven or something. He goes, there's nowhere to go. When there's nothing of you left, there is nowhere to go. Because whatever you really are, this eternal I, if we're going to talk about it that way, isn't anywhere and or everywhere. It's beyond those, the, that, whole, that whole concept. So, you know, there are people that I've been blessed 
uh, and I imagine Neem Karoli Baba, though I never met him, would be one of them. Uh, so I, I, I imagine that I would say that you and I have both been blessed to be in the presence of people who, who got the, this capital T truth, who lived it yeah. and didn't just write books about it like me. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is a beautiful book and very enlightening and, and very important. And there's lots of pearls in here. And, well, thank you. And I, I really encourage everybody to pick it up. Uh, and, uh, and by the way, there's a, a the I think is it the final chapter I think called "Dying Wisely: Returning to the One," um, th- which is very much uh, on our minds. Not because we're boomers and we're we're going to be looking off into the shorter distance uh, relative to all that, but we're actually putting. Um, I'm working with Ramdas on a uh, and Mirabai Bush on a. On a, on a dying book, and he's giving his perspective from where, where he is now, and he's 86, been in a wheelchair for 20 years. So that's, uh, you know, we've, we've been thinking a lot about that, and we did a, um, a course earlier this year from him on aging and awakening, it was called. So, oh, wow. Yeah, so I think all of that uh, is uh, super important. I'm glad you, you brought that up in the book as well, Rami. This, so, uh, hey, thank you for this. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Somehow, uh, I guess the only way to meet up, because you're so busy, I'm popping around the world myself, is to get you out to Maui one of these days. Yeah, Maui. That sounds like a good idea. Is that a good idea? (laughs) To one of our retreats? Uh, That sounds good. I'm serious, and we're going to talk about this off air at some point. But again, thank you very much. And uh, So everybody uh, wants you to, again, the World Wisdom Bible... And it's from uh, Skylight Paths. But you can just go to Amazon and, and just buy it. And as I said before, use our link uh, at BeHereNowNetwork.com. And uh, you want to be in touch uh, with uh, with Rami. R- Rabbi, tell us the uh, URL so people can get in touch with you. Yeah, it's OneRiverFoundation.org. OneRiverFoundation.org. Okay, perfect. Uh, and we will have that up on the page where we uh, post the podcast uh, with the show notes, and uh, the book will be there as well, and links to it. So uh, thank you again. And My pleasure. Absolutely. This we'll, is great talking with you. Yeah, we'll do this again. This is uh, Raghu at uh, Mind Rolling on the Be Here Now Network. See you next time.